message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light. They was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament. And divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning was the second day. <laughs> God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you. All of you on the good earth. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your creation and for your word. And we pray you open up our hearts to what you have to say and open up what you have to say to our hearts. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in 1961, the Soviet space program successfully put a man in orbit around the world and brought him back to Earth again. Uh, the cosmonaut who had the privilege of being that man was Yuri Gagarin, um, five foot two fighter pilot with a very photogenic smile and enormous propaganda value to the communist government. And the Soviet leader at the time, Nikita Khrushchev, after he had come back, after Gagarin had come back, made a speech as part of his broader anti-religion propaganda campaign, and he had said, Gregorin flew into space, but he didn't see any God there. Seems unlikely that Gregorin went there to look for God. The man had an orthodox faith. He baptized his oldest daughter shortly before launch. But Khrushchev was happy to use Gregorin's popularity for that purpose and to run this propaganda line out to the public, both in Russia and to the world at large. This idea that with the united effort and camaraderie of the Soviet people, they have breached even that heavenly frontier and now we may dismiss all superstition that would suggest that man is subject to any power beyond the limits of his own ingenuity. There are parallels to the Tower of Babel there. Let us build a rocket with its top in the heavens. But by contrast, seven years later, in an attempt to one-up Gagarin's achievement, the US government launched Apollo 8 to orbit the moon twice before returning to Earth. And the three men on that vessel would be the first to see the dark side of the moon, the first to see the sunrise over the moon, the first to see what we call earth rise, the earth dawning over the horizon of the moon, as you saw in that colorized photograph during that recording. And witnessing those things, they made that recording that you heard on Christmas Eve in 1968. It was the most watched broadcast in history at the time. 
They chose to read the first 10 verses of Genesis because to them, traveling into space was not a Babel-esque expression of godless human achievement. It filled them with religious awe. And this is important because these were highly accomplished and highly trained and highly intelligent men, as much scientists as soldiers, as is necessary for astronauts to be. But what they did not feel, and what the men of Nasser did not feel, and what Yuri Gagarin did not feel, was any intellectual conflict between their operating on the cutting edge of space-age scientific human endeavor and their faith in God. Because the idea that science conflicts with religion, or it's incompatible with faith, or it disproves the existence of God, is a manufactured idea that did not take root in the Western world until fairly recently indeed. But it is here now, and boy did it sink its fangs in when it got here. And so this is exceptionally relevant for us to talk about Tonight, we're going through this series on blockers. You probably know if you've been coming to the evening service. Blockers are things that people would say are blocking them from considering Christianity seriously. And so, um, previously, Charlie opened this series some weeks ago talking about the big blocker, the idea of if God's so good, why is there so much evil in the world? And that being something that stops people from considering Christ seriously. That's probably about the oldest question that's ever been raised as an objection to religion. Now, this week... We're talking about a much newer question. Hasn't science disproven God? Do we have a need of God in our technologically advanced, sophisticated age? Hasn't science at least proven itself reliable enough that if we don't know an answer, we're best assuming that science will provide one later than looking for a religious one? Have we not theorized and double-blind tested and variable-controlled God into such a tiny corner of our lives that we can just label that part superstition, that we don't understand and move on with our rational lives. This is an important question, and it's difficult because it really contains more than one question housed under the same one. So we're going to try and disentangle them. But to do that, I'm going to need the clicker I used to operate my PowerPoint, which I only now realize I did not get before coming up here. So you have about one minute to talk amongst yourselves. It'll like me. Oh, they're going to run it up to me. They're amazing people. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Scott. Can you applaud these guys, please? Merci. Great. Um, so we want to disentangle these questions that are actually buried in this one idea of does science disprove God? Because people actually mean a few different things when they ask that, when they try and dismiss religion by throwing a handful of science at it. They could mean isn't religious as a faith-based endeavor entirely incompatible with science, which is a fact-based endeavor? Can you actually have one and the other in an honest way with yourself? A religious man might say, oh, God has blessed us with rain. A scientific man might say, rain has fallen, because that's what rain does, and that's just a function of condensation, meeting dust particles in a cooling atmosphere, no God required. So are religion and faith incompatible? That's one way you could construe this question. Another question is this. Doesn't science deal with the real world, the world you live in, and religion deals with a fluffy, metaphysical, unreal, doesn't quite matter world that might be very significant to you, but should never really interact with the scientific one? So shouldn't you just believe whatever you want as long as it doesn't collide with science doing its job in the real world? That's another way you could take this question. 
And a final idea you could draw from this is more modern than that. It's the idea that isn't religion an outdated way of dealing with the world to which science is the updated version? Aren't we actually harming ourselves as a species by clinging to an old relic instead of embracing a newer, more powerful truth that leads to better freedom and better results? So I've summarized it like this into these three ideas, and we're going to go through each of them. We've got science and God, pick a team. We've got science rules, religion drills. And we have religion is dead weight. These ideas are all subtly different, but they are significantly different. And so the first one proposes that science and religion are in competition with each other, and to choose one is to abandon the other. Second one suggests that science matters and religion is just a mostly harmless thing you can do in your own time. And the third one goes the whole hog and says that religion in the 21st century is an evil force that is holding back humanity. Now, you know or you will meet people who believe all of these things. So we should ask these questions. Now let's ask the first one first. Picking a team between science and God, can we be scientific people and believers at the same time? Can we be intellectually fulfilled by science and spiritually fulfilled by religion at the same time? Because if we are honest, religion and science have had a checkered history living in the same apartment. Sometimes they don't seem to get along. Here's one example. Now this Santa Claus-looking Persian gentleman is Abu Hamid al-Ghazali. He is uh, the man who about 900 years ago raised this question for debate in the Islamic world, which was the most scientifically, mathematically, astronomically advanced civilization in the world at the time. And Ghazali tells a story in which he basically asks this question. When an archer draws back his, his string on his bow and he aims his arrow at the target, who is responsible for that arrow hitting the target? Is the archer responsible or is God responsible? Essentially, he's asking, are there principles in this world that uh, we can come to know uh, that will enrich our lives and I mean that we can predict, that we can build our lives around, or is the only way to any meaningful truth in the world the study and the remembrance of God? Is it vain for the archer to say, well, I trained very hard, I angled the shot right, I waited for the wind to die down? Should he just say, I hit the target because God allowed me to do so? So who guides the arrow? And Al-Ghazali's answer was God. God is the one who makes the arrow hit the target, and consequently, Al-Ghazali's thinking gained prominence. It became more prestigious and profitable for young Muslims to, uh, study, um, to study religious disciplines rather than academic ones. More of them enrolled in religious schools. Science in the Muslim world slowly stagnated. Europe spent the next 600 years catching up because of guys like this gentleman. Uh, this guy is Albertus Magnus, Albert the Great. Uh, Catholics eventually made him the patron saint of the natural sciences, which doesn't carry a lot of water in Baptist circles, but um, it does tell you what the man was about, that's for sure. Albert was a, a fantastic scientist and a man of God. And in his many works, Meteor among them, he confronts similar questions, the idea of can God and intellectual pursuits, pursuit of the natural sciences, can these things coexist in a peaceful way? He never used the archery question specifically, but for symmetry, I've posed it to him as well. And if you had asked Albert if the archer or God was responsible for hitting the target, he would say both. God's established the order of the world in which men and women operate, he is within his power, certainly, to do miracles and overturn the natural laws which govern the world. But he himself established those laws. 
And by studying the world and understanding the world, we can know more about the creation and the creator. That's the governing principle for Christians who have engaged with science for the last 800 years or so. You may have pockets of reversal in the Christian movements around the world. You have Amish communities and Mennonite communities who outright reject anything as scientifically complex as buttons, um, and they do so as an expression of their faith. But by and large, a total sense of compatibility within, with faith and science has been the rule for Christians for as long as we have been scientifically thinking at all. It was that way for Albertus Magnus. It was that way for the astronauts in Apollo 8. Science is a vehicle to discover more about creation, and creation reveals the majesty of its creator. This is an idea which theologians have sometimes called the book of nature. That God's revealed himself in two ways. In the book of scripture, he reveals himself explicitly and narratively. In the book of nature, by that we mean the natural world and the study of it, he's revealed himself implicitly and majestically. And if you read these two books alongside one another, you come to know God in a way that you can't if you only read one of them. And that brings us to our second idea. So the first idea is that uh, science versus God, do you have to pick a team? No, obviously not. And I'm afraid anyone that insists that you do doesn't know much about at least one of those teams. But now number two, science rules, religion drools. Okay, you can have both science and religion, but science is the one that matters. And religion is fine just as long as it doesn't get in the way. Most young modern Australians think along the lines of this idea. They don't have much religious inclination themselves, but they have a friend who goes to church and they aren't crazy. So they mostly agree about the right way to live with them as well. And therefore, people can believe whatever they like as long as they more or less keep it to themselves. And they don't force it down my throat, a colourful metaphor that really means as long as it doesn't come up in my life in a way that irritates me. These people are often quite polite in their dismissal of religion. They never had it. They don't understand why you think it's so important. But they don't want to be rude. They're civilised. They don't want to pick a fight with you, so they say, hey, I respect your faith, but I just believe in science. Now, this is a problem because science is not a belief system. To believe in something is to set it as a priority for your effort in the world, to stake your life on it. If you believe in true love, you will spend your younger years looking for a relationship that seems different in kind to regular love. You will live by that idea because you believe in it. If you believe in freedom of speech, you will take great offense at any infringement of the right to speak. It's part of your world and how you operate. If you believe in science, what does that mean? Do you carry around test tubes and take samples of metamorphic rocks you encounter? No. Do you perform a 40-year longitudinal study before you make any significant decisions in your life? No. Science is not a belief system, it is a tool. A powerful tool, but it has to be employed for a purpose itself. Now this guy is Scottish philosopher David Hume, and David Hume was not particularly a friend to religion in any capacity, but he famously confronted this idea that science is just not the same as religion in this oblique way. He, what we call the is-ought problem, and that is that you cannot derive an ought from an is. You cannot derive an ought from an is. What does that mean? Well, ought is a word that has a value statement to it, for belief statements. You might say, Every criminal ought to be punished in proportion to their crime, for example. 
got something you value that isn't necessarily true. No one can argue with that statement, though. It seems pretty self-evident. Every criminal should be, ought to be punished in proportion to their crime. That's a statement about how things ought to be. Now, by contrast, an is statement is one purely about facts, the kind you might deal with in a scientific field rather than a values field. Not every criminal is punished in proportion to their crime. No one can argue with that. That's an is statement. It's just a statement about something that is. Now, how does a Christian get from one of these to the other? How do you get from the way things are to the way things should be? Well, a Christian would think not every criminal is punished in proportion to their crime. But God commands us to obey his law or to face just punishment, and therefore every criminal ought to be punished in proportion to their crime. It's a simple movement there for someone who has a value system. But how does a person who only believes in science get to the ought, get to the way things should be? Not every criminal is punished. Science commands us to obey the law. No, it doesn't. It does nothing of the sort. Science doesn't care if you obey the law. Science has no interest in your value statements. And this is more or less what Hume was articulating. You cannot build a world of values and right and wrong based purely on the intellectual knowledge of what is. And that's the entire realm that science lives in. Now, incredibly, David Hume would then go on to try very hard to derive an ought from an is, but he fails. Because values correctly do come from a belief system that you stake your life on. And they're the only thing that allows us to make moral statements at all. We ought to be more generous with our giving to the poor because God loves a cheerful giver. We ought to conduct ourselves honorably because that is a more Christ-like way to behave. We ought to stop people from harming the innocent because God has given us a moral charge to minimize the evil done in the world. These ideas are all so much more important to our lives than anything you could discover with a purely scientific metric. All these oughts are way more important than any is. Now this guy, this soulless monster, is a man called Karl Panzram. He was a murderer, among other things. If you want to know specifically why he's among the most evil people who has ever walked the earth, you can come and ask me after this. But suffice for now to say that he was a nihilist and a murderer. He didn't believe anything. And he was eventually put on death row in the U.S. for his crimes. Various human rights activists and anti-death penalty advocates began to speak up against his sentence, and this was his response to them. He said, The only thanks you and your kind will ever get from me for your efforts on my behalf is that I wish you all had one neck and that I could have my hands on it. Karl Panzerum lived a life completely consistent with a lack of belief. Certainly he believed that uh, in the scientifically detectable world, like everyone else does. But he had no faith to speak of and no values for the world except those which he created for himself. Now, I am not saying that atheists necessarily become like Karl Panzram or that a purely scientific worldview turns people into serial killers. That would be a crazy thing to say, and I am not saying that. It would not be true. What I am saying is that a religious person can tell you why Karl Panzram was a monster. A person without any religion can only tell you why Karl Panzram was a monster if he is willing to borrow the language of right and wrong and evil and punishment from the religious guy. 
We can't do it from a purely scientific basis. You cannot get that ought from the is. Faith and values, that together they are so much more important in our lives than any disinterested collection of facts. It's not the pursuit of detailed intellectual information that gives our life meaning. It's our values that we derive from God. And that, I think, is what Solomon means in Ecclesiastes 2 when he says this. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this is also vanity. That wisdom, a great accumulation of knowledge, is vanity. We live in a culture that actually prizes intellect just about above all things. This is why the first insult people reach to when they're in a conflict with someone is to call the other person stupid or idiot. But the smartest person and the simplest person will both stand one day before God and have to account for the good and the evil that they have done. It's religion, not science, that actually gives us God's instruction on how to live our lives. So you do not have to pick a side. You can have both science and faith in your life, absolutely. Religion is the core of our values and behavior, whether we like it or not. And so you simply can't kick it to the side and say it doesn't matter. But there's also this third idea here, which is a fairly, uh, fairly modern invention. Um, this idea that religion not only doesn't matter, it's actually harmful to people in the world. It's actually a harmful force overall. It holds humanity back. It's so full of rules that might have been useful in bringing peasants out of the Dark Ages, but today it creates more harm than good. Now, if you're very interested in this kind of thing and in popular intellectuals and debates, um, you probably know about Christopher Hitchens. The late Mr. Hitchens was part of a wave of folks that came to be known as the New Atheists. They were called the New Atheists because of the way that through most of the 20th century, popular as atheism was becoming, uh, they were mostly interested in politely discarding God and rolling their eyes to each other about their superstitious colleagues. After the terrorist attack on 9-11, many atheists decided that enough is enough. We've tolerated this regressive religious nonsense long enough. Now it's killing people. Religion, they would say, is not just silly, it's bad, and we should treat it as bad. And so Hitchens wrote a book called God is Not Great. I've included here just about the friendliest quote that I could find from uh, Christopher Hitchens. The person who is certain and who claims divine warrant for his certainty belongs now to the infancy of our species. That's what Christopher Hitchens says. So he's saying that religion is primitive and barbaric. It tells us to disrespect women, to stone homosexuals, to commit genocide, to keep slaves, and the time has come to get rid of it. And there's any number of these guys. There's Lawrence Krauss and Daniel Dennett and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, and all of them have made a fortune off very genuinely flying around the world to theaters full of people to rant about religion and how much better the world would be without it. Now, they don't have an answer for the previous question, in fact. They don't know how to derive the ought from the is, but they leap right over that problem by declaring that religion has no right to declare what's good and bad in the first place. Because whatever standard you use, religion is certainly worse. 
if you need the fear of God punishing you to keep you from being cruel to your fellow man, then you are evil and twisted. That's Christopher's claim as well. Now, Christopher's brother, superior Hitchens, in my opinion, um, a very different Hitchens indeed. His career was mostly composed of lamenting the end of traditional values in Britain. And when asked if he had any advice for young Britons who were afraid to see the decline of church and traditional values in that place, in that kingdom, his response was, emigrate to Australia while you're still young, it's too late for me. <laughs> but Peter has a pretty amazing story about his atheist youth before he was drawn back into the arms of God. He wrote a book called, oops, I forgot to change the name there. It's not in fact called Dissertation on Islamic Mysticism. Um, his book's called The Rage Against God. Partly an autobiography, um, partly a counterpoint to his books like his, uh, books like his brother's. And in that he says this, Only one reliable force stands in the way of the power of the strong over the weak. Only one reliable force forms the foundation of the concept of the rule of law. Only one reliable force restrains the hand of the man of power. And in an age of power worship, the Christian religion has become the principal obstacle to the desire of earthly utopians for absolute power. Peter spent some years himself in the Soviet Union and saw firsthand the horrific potential of a government with no religious conviction and the value structure of Karl Panzram. Has religion been the justification, even the cause of much suffering in the world? Of course. Has the Christian religion specifically been the cause of much suffering in the world? If we're honest, we have to say yes. But to want to throw that whole thing off, the Christian religion which created the moral spine of our civilization for that reason is like a skydiver removing his parachute in free fall because the harness is chafing. It's like cutting off your legs because you keep tripping on your shoelaces. Applying God's word and teaching in our lives in the world can be hard work. Sometimes we do it badly and sometimes people get hurt. Sometimes it's just painful. But the idea that it is holding us back, that our faith is dead weight to our society, is insane. Because Christopher Hitchens was right. The fact that the fear of God requires us to stop being cruel, although we need the fear of God punishing us to stop being cruel to each other, that does mean we are twisted and evil. That is called being fallen. We've never said anything else. Everyone is twisted and evil, but God, through Jesus Christ, has opened the way to become untwisted if we are honest about our nature and willing to ask for his saving grace. That is the truth. So in short, does science disprove God? No. But most of you already knew that. Now, if you're visiting tonight, and this is your first time you've engaged with this question, I hope it's been helpful to you. Um, I'd love to meet you after the service, but most people in this room already know that science doesn't disprove God. Many of us know how simple it is to see why that is the case for the reasons we've talked about tonight. But do we understand why this is a blocker to faith? Why people so desperately cling to the idea, such a flimsy idea, that the belief in God is foolish or irrelevant or evil that can be done away with so easily? Why do people cling to that? The truth is we are feeling creatures much more than we are thinking creatures. And lovers of science, like everyone else, want to feel like they have some sense of control over their life. 
that they know the things that matter. And the things that they don't know, they can't matter. This is how we humans like to simplify our world, because the world is big and terrifying, and we don't know most of the things in it. So we pick the ground we feel most powerful on, and we build our values on that ground. That's the way that humans approach the world. Now, I'm the kind of guy that is classically called a nerd. Nerds like intellectual things, puzzles, games that require thought. What nerds typically don't like is sport. So if you ask many nerds what they think of sport, they would usually say it's dumb. What's the point in running around in the grass chasing a ball? I used to say such things myself. But the truth is that is actually a statement of insecurity. Running around in the grass chasing a ball doesn't have any less point than playing a video game or reading a work of fiction. The real reason I would disparage sport is because I suck at sports. I don't understand offsides, and I never have, and I never will. I'm not particularly coordinated, and when I kick the ball, it usually flies off the side of my foot, and I have to run off to get it and feel like an idiot doing so. But if it turned out that there was actually some value to sport that I am missing, and I am bad at sport, then I have a problem, because I don't actually know a whole lot about that. And I would much rather it turn out that sport doesn't matter, and the things I like and am good at, those are the real things, and they do matter. I'd much rather act as if the things that I'm good at and are comfortable with are the things that matter. This is why people who don't understand politics don't care about politics, and they become very insecure when politics start to matter against their best wishes. This is why people who don't understand much about science reject science, and they become very insecure when science appears to have a say. And this is why people who don't understand the nature of faith and have no experience of God, this is why they would like to maintain that science is really the only thing that matters. And they become incredibly insecure when it starts to look like God actually matters after all. This is a uh, prestigious geneticist, Professor Richard Lewinton. Um, when questioned about why he maintains that scientists should reject religion, he offered the following illuminating quote in the New York Review of Books. He said, We take the side of science, already picking a side as if they are sides, in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, because we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. We would rather tolerate patent absurdity that we suspect there are billions of universes that we cannot detect and billions of years we cannot measure and we can derive our morality from the behavior of apes. These are patent absurdities, but we are willing to accept them. If you eliminate the words of God, the idea that you, if you can eliminate the words of the God who said, love your neighbor, and that that would make the world a more peaceful place, is absurd. But if you allow the idea that God might be involved in the world in some real way that actually matters to how you live, that very quickly invades the nice structure of meaning that we've already built for our lives. He gets his foot in the door. We can't have that. And that's a terrifying thought. That's the real reason that people say science has disproven God. They are afraid to allow a divine foot in the door and what that might mean for the rest of their life. Now this guy, 
he is my favorite. Uh, David Belinsky is an agnostic secular Jew who nonetheless is intensely skeptical of the big claims of new atheism, um, evolution, all that stuff. He has an excellent quote that he responds to Lewinton with. He says, if one is obliged to accept the absurdities, these absurdities for fear of a divine foot, imagine what prodigies of effort would be required with the rest of the divine torso found wedged at the door and with some justifiable irritation demanding to be let in. That is the truth of it. For science lovers and scientists and science fans, God is demanding to be let in. For people who only care about politics, God is demanding to be let in. In Jesus' day, the people who only cared about religious practice in its pharisaical interpretation, God was demanding to be let in. For you, it might be science or experience of life or even happiness or family or religion. Whatever the thing is that you lean on first to get your sense of stability and order in your world, that the things outside that don't matter, God says, that's not big enough. You have to start with me. Stop trying to close the door on my foot and let me in. The reason that people have this idea that science is defeating religion isn't because there has been some sudden surge in science which is swallowing up religion. It's because our culture and the people in our culture have become dramatically less biblically literate less spiritually aware, less religiously inclined, and the idea that God might be willing to mess up their handholds on life is terrifying to them. But God is good, and he loves us, and he will kick in the door if he has to. This fellow is Robert Jastrow. He's an astronomer of great prestige. His book, God and the Astronomers, is about the time when the Big Bang Theory suddenly was gaining influence. Suddenly, the prevailing theory that had existed before that, the idea that the universe had no beginning and was just kind of there, that seemed to be wrong. It seemed that the universe, in fact, began all at once, suspiciously enough, as if, for example, someone had created it. And he writes about how this sent shockwaves of dread and disquiet through the community of astrological scientists, astronomical, I should say, scientists, because it very strongly suggested that the origins of the universe had a beginning in a creation event, not unlike the one they had all grown up hearing in church and then later dismissed as a fairy tale. Jastrow writes this, the scientist has scaled the mountains of ignorance he is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. There is no escaping God. Any honest investigation of the book of nature and the book of scripture will find they dovetail and interlock perfectly. And if we are honest, we will discover that ourselves. We don't need to choose between them. We don't need to think of one as relevant and the other as meaningless. And if we think that we can close the book of Scripture and be better for it, we do so at our own peril. In, the hearts, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. We all plan our course. We all want to believe that we know enough to succeed in this life and to do the things we want to do and to come to the end of it and feel like we've one somehow. We've done the thing we were meant to do. But it's God who truly establishes our steps. It's God who maps out our life despite any obsession we might have with any little domain of the universe that we think we have mastered. And evangelism, 
to anyone is a demonstration through word and deed that we are all fallen and we are all, in fact, in our natural state, quite clueless. And our mastery, we think we have of the world, is childish. But God, who sent his Son into the world to die so that we could come to know him as father and friend, that God has his foot in the door. So you might as well let him come in. Let's pray. Father God, you're the creator of all that we survey. This universe, from the tiniest subparticles to the galactic clusters, is the work of your hands, and we praise you for the wonderful things you have done. You're the author of the world, and for each of us, whether we acknowledge it or not, you're the Lord of our worlds. So help us to resist the prideful insecurity that drives us to push you to the fringes and try desperately to control the world in our power and our cleverness, God. Help us to submit to you. Help us to delight in living in your will for our lives. And Lord, for those who don't know you and for whom the idea of science is an obstacle to coming to you. We pray you equip the saints around them to better understand and speak into their lives. And may each of us have the courage to speak boldly of your gospel, but also have the conviction to live our lives plainly in a way that demonstrates that you are the core of everything we believe. And finally, Lord, wherever the frontiers of human curiosity will take us as a species, Lord, may we encounter these fresh aspects of your creation with a wonderment and an awe that gives glory to you. And we ask all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.